Welcome. You're listening to Value Add with Lars Coburn, bringing conversations and reflections that add value to your life. Hey, Value Add listeners, it's Lars Coburn, and I'm glad that you tuned into this episode of the podcast. Perhaps this is your first episode of the Value Add Conversations podcast, um, and I'm glad that you're here. Uh, If you're new to the project, or maybe you've listened to a couple episodes but aren't quite sure what is going on with this podcast, uh, I'm really researching, doing some interviews, some conversations to explore something that's really close to my heart, which is what are the practices, what are the habits, what are the things people do every day when they wake up, they make choices. And sometimes we make choices uh, that add value to our lives, and other times we make choices that are at best just kind of neutral. And I want to look at things that uh, are really helpful, that really do add value to our lives. And so that's why I'm drawn to people like Dusty, who we're talking to today, uh, and others. And so you may have some people in mind uh, for me to get a hold of and talk to. And I'd love to, to get in touch with you and to have those interviews and share those conversations. And you can also find out more about the projects that I'm doing. Uh, you can support the podcast and the book project and the research that I'm doing. You can also uh, check out some blog posts that are going to be coming out more and more frequently uh, as I finish my master's. Uh, So today we're talking to Dusty about his master's thesis. I didn't have to do a master's thesis, but in many ways, if I was to do a master's thesis, it would be basically what this podcast is, uh, exploring the things in our lives that add value, especially to our spiritual life. And our spiritual life is more than just, um, you know, what we do at church or our Bible reading or even the times of quiet prayer. And I think that you're going to benefit a lot from the conversation that Dusty and I have where we explore uh, his podcast, which really could be a podcast on health and on fitness. Um, But he applies that to our spiritual life and the spiritual disciplines and uh, how we can choose elective stress when it comes to our spiritual life to create some post-traumatic uh, growth, some growth um, from doing the hard things. Uh, so I hope you're benefited by this podcast. And if you want to connect with me, uh, check out the website and also uh, just send me an email. I'd love to, to chat, love to have a conversation with you about the things that add value to your life as we explore uh, and really dig in uh, to this project. So here we go. All right, we're out here in Malibu uh, looking out over the ocean, although it's a little cloudy today, but it's still a beautiful view um, at my friend Dusty's house. Um, so Dusty, thanks for having us at your house. Thanks for being here, man. Yeah. So, um, so let's see, I, I was reading your blog and you kind of talk about yourself in three ways. You're a minister, a trainer, and a mentor. And I mean, I, I think those three words fit to give kind of a... A kind of good intro to who you are although they don't say anything about a beard but um but anyway maybe we can just say wolverine and people can imagine what that is but um so tell us a little bit about those three words minister trainer mentor and why you you use those to refer to yourself yeah um i, I think those are just three things that define who i am today but also who i've been throughout my entire life as i look back um as a um, as, a, as a teenager, I think I had my first kind of experience of wanting to be a minister, uh, mm-hmm. recognizing that that was uh, an interest and passion of mine. And so that has played out in a variety of different ways. Um, and then the idea of uh, being a trainer uh, has been rooted in 
uh, pursuit of fitness throughout my life as well. Um, my dad was a big weightlifter uh, oh, cool. back in the day, and um, and so I, I have all these childhood memories of coming home uh, after school and my dad coming home from work and us lifting weights in the basement. And so mm-hmm. my earliest memories of being a being a kid were lifting weights with my dad, and and so that that has become part of. Uh, my just kind of who I am has become part of our my marriage and uh, my family is rooted in that as well. And then the idea of, of uh, being a mentor is something that has been crafted, I think, over the last probably 10 years as I have been mentored. Mm. Uh, as so many specifically guys in my life have taken me under their wing and mentored me up in faith, fitness, uh, relationships, uh, all things. And at some point in that journey, I recognized that I had to make the shift. I can't always be the mentee. At some point, I had to give back. Um, and so that's been more of an intentional focus, I think, uh, in the last several years. That's awesome. Um, so have you ever gone down to like Muscle Beach or anything like oh, that? Oh, totally. Yeah. 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 I mean, you can't live you know, 20 miles away from Muscle Beach and not yeah. go down and see where Arnold did all of his, right? his stuff down there. It's kind of an interesting place. Um, do you, has your dad ever come to visit uh, there? Or? It, it, he's been out to California, but he, we've never gone down there together. Yeah. Uh, that would be a fun uh, father-son trip someday yeah. to, to check that out. And we, we just kind of stumbled. Well, we were down at Santa Monica, and then we like walked all the way down there, and yep. it was really neat. I mean, obviously, there's the stuff out in the sand that's kind of fun. My, my brother is... Is uh, got a lot of upper body strength, so he did some of the rings and stuff, yeah. which was cool. But um, but then you get down to actual like the old Venice kind of Muscle Beach yeah. area, and that's that's kind of a neat. And it's a really interesting subculture. I would I would totally yeah. Um, I mean the uh, I mean the history of Arnold um, at Muscle Beach is pretty fascinating. Just looking back at how um, the documentary Pumping Iron um, mm. came out, what in like the seventies. Uh, was a big shift in 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 the wellness spectrum uh, hmm. because um, it took these these bodybuilders, these like really obscure you know yeah. freak ish uh, human beings, and gave them names and faces and personalities, and hmm. that was a big uh, it was a pivotal point for um, for fitness today. So there's a yeah. lot of history uh, in in fitness and wellness in Southern California, but specifically the Muscle Beach area as well. Right, right. Uh, my dad is, you know, grew up in Tracktown, USA, in Eugene, and mm-hmm. watched Prefontaine and all those things. So I'm mm-hmm. more familiar with the running boom totally. and everything yep. than the, the fitness thing. Um, let's see, we talked a little bit about fitness. Uh, we'll get to the um, more introduction things, but tell us a little bit. You're doing CrossFit, right? Mm-hmm. So um, I don't really know what sets CrossFit yeah. apart other than it's kind of like a cult. So, um, <laughs> no, I mean that in a good way. Like sure. it's a really, you know, intense group of people and uh, almost feels too intense for me since I'm kind of an average amateur fitness person. <laughs> but anyway, but I love, yeah. you know, how you use it uh, for ministry mm-hmm. and mentoring and all that. Mm-hmm. Um, so tell us a little bit about CrossFit and kind of what drew you to CrossFit. Yeah. Um, so I, I first got connected to CrossFit, gosh, probably five or six years ago. My wife, uh, my wife had, uh, she worked for uh, uh, Lululemon, a yoga company at the time, mm. and they gave, she got free workouts so she could go oh, anywhere cool. and get free workouts. And she started going to um, CrossFit Malibu. And mm. over the course of her uh, being there for five or six weeks, I like totally watched her, her body transform and uh, and I was really inspired not only by 
the way that her body transformed, but the things that she could do with her body too. So mm. watching her do like legless rope climbs, I was like, oh, oh my wow. gosh, this is insane. And so insane. Uh, that, that introduction um, paired with, I think, uh, an experience that I was just having in life of, of thinking about uh, wanting, to, wanting, wanting to be functional with my, with my body. Um, I was totally like the, the guy doing bicep curls in the, in the weight room as a college student. Yeah. And, uh, I think over time you just realize that that, um, that's not necessarily functional. And mm -hmm. so I think the desire to, uh, to, to ask what could I do with my body rather than what can your body look like, mm. um, was definitely something that led me to, to CrossFit. Um, and so, um, what I would say about CrossFit is that one of the, one of the uh, sayings that you'll hear CrossFitters talk about is to lift more than the runner and run more than the lifter. Mm. And so the idea is uh, to be um, the best generalist that you can be, um, that you can be uh, strong enough to accomplish things that you want to be strong to do, but that you also have the cardiovascular endurance to mm. accomplish those things as well. Yeah. Well, I mean, that almost sounds kind of similar to, uh, you know, you're, you're like the youth minister, campus minister, so you do like... <laughs> The preaching and teaching and lead worship kind of stuff and you know you're the fun game kind of organizer yeah, or whatever. Totally. so you're you're kind of the best generalist yeah. minister too yeah, being uh, we, able to do a lot of different things yeah yeah i like that we can definitely uh, explore those kind of things more i um i think about kind of one of the earliest memories i mean I'm, i i don't actually remember when we f officially met the first time it probably was a couple times where we like introduced sure. ourselves to each other but um, I remember being at BJ's in Fullerton, uh, you know, we do a youth minister mo uh, monthly lunch there. And I think this was a time when Jeff Walling was coming into town and was kind of trying to get to know the group and, uh, you know, trying to kind of launch this Pepperdine youth leadership initiative that he was trying to get going. And, and, uh, and we're sitting over pizza and pizookies and we're talking about, you know, just kind of ministry and what that might look like. Um, and, I think that was one of the times that I kind of said, okay, this is a group of guys that I, I really don't know what I'm doing, you know, in youth ministry. And this is a group of guys who can help me figure this out or at least mentor me in, in that way. And, um, so, you know, that's definitely been a place for, um, for me to just kind of share life with, with these guys. Yeah. Um, but you know, what draws you continually back to that group? I mean, you've been here, I think, four or five years? Um, um, finish my seventh year. Your seventh right year yeah. as he's ministry. Wow, yeah. okay. So longer than I was thinking even. Yeah. Um, so yeah, what continues to draw you into that group after seven seven years being here? Uh, I would say probably the same thing that connects me with CrossFit and connects me with um, be, uh, the Christian community as well, and that is just the, the idea of community. Um, I think mm -hmm. uh, when you look at... Um, Anything that's sustainable, uh, it's usually sustainable because of relationships. Anything that um, is challenging is usually overcomable only because of relationships. So there's uh, just, I think it runs through my veins to, to pursue community and relationships um, in all aspects of, of life. And so I think that's why I love CrossFitting is because there's a really strong community. That's why I show up every morning for church on Sundays mm -hmm. um, it's because of community um, and that's why I show up at our monthly youth ministers gatherings is because yeah. they're people in relationships that I want to continue to build and, and, and connect with yeah well we appreciate um, what you bring to the group as well and um, you know as uh, 
you you said so seven years. So tell us a little bit about how you end up here in Malibu. I mean, we're on Pepperdine University's campus. You're a youth and campus minister at the University Church of Christ. I hope that's how that's you correct. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's okay. It, yeah. Um, I can never remember exactly what people's titles are. My title is ambiguous too. So yeah. it's like uh, whatever you want it to be. Um, but so how did you end up? You know, in this. I would say pretty sweet gig, but also a place that, um, you know, you've had a tremendous impact on as well, um, launching the well and some other things at, at Pepperdine's campus and, and those kind of things. So, um, what was that journey like to end up here in Malibu? Yeah. Um, Pepperdine was actually my, my, um, a school that I went to as an undergraduate student. It was my fourth university. Um, I, I went to a different college in a different state every year for four years. Wow. Um, so I went to culinary school in Indiana, and then I had a couple other universities before ending up at Pepperdine. Mm-hmm. And uh, I, I would say it was uh, I was on a journey, kind of wandering, trying to find the right spot, the right mm-hmm. place for me. And it took me a while to get here, um, but Pepperdine uh, was, a, was an amazing fit. Mm-hmm. And, um, and so my, I met my wife here. We graduated uh, from Pepperdine in 2010, um, and then I had uh, I had started a nonprofit organization building ovens in East Africa. And so we we moved to Africa, moved to Kenya after graduating, um, got married in Kenya, and spent our first year of marriage living in Kenya, uh, wow. working with a, a nonprofit that I had started. And uh, around that time, we I had heard that the youth ministry position here at Pepperdine had come open. And as a student, I remember sitting uh, in in the pews at the university church, or actually the chairs. We meet in Elkins Auditorium, yeah. and so I remember sitting in the chairs, and uh, I remember hearing the then youth minister speak and talk about her work here. And uh, I was thinking, man, what would it be like to do youth ministry in Malibu? Right? Mm-hmm. What what unique challenges would be presented to you? Um, and so I remember that from my undergraduate experience of just thinking, like, man, I bet that would be hard. And, and so when I heard that the job came open, uh, I, I had this kind of desire to explore that challenge. Mm. And so um, we applied, ended up getting the job, and we moved back from Kenya uh, in July of 2011 uh, to start our, our work here um, as the youth minister. And so that's how we ended up back here um, and have such a love for Pepperdine and for the university church and our community. Uh, and uh, it's been a, a huge part of why we love this place. Malibu is nice too. Uh, yeah, we enjoy the yeah. weather, enjoy the water, enjoy the the trails, and um, being outdoors here. But and your newest hobby of spearfishing, oh, right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's a it's a growing hobby. Uh, <laughs> not yet amazing at it. We're just uh, my, the fish that I shoot are still pretty small, but yeah. someday they'll they'll get bigger. Yeah, just don't get a shark yet. You know that's yeah, uh, that's right. That's right. Uh, well, that, that is really neat. I mean, we can't spend a whole lot of time on it, but um, the nonprofit of the mm. ovens in Africa. So, how mm. did that? Just you know, how did that happen? Yeah, um, I uh, I went to culinary school, and so I had uh, a desire to connect my my passion for ministry with my passion for baking and cooking, and so um, I, I visited uh, some missionaries in Uganda at the time, and. Mm. Uh, learned how to build a kind of a, um, a, a traditional or more traditional style outdoor oven out of bricks and mm-hmm. um, steel oil drums. And um, it was just an attempt to, to do something that mattered with some skills that I had developed. And yeah. 
Uh, and that was a journey uh, that we that I did for about five or six years. That's awesome! Wow, that's very cool. Um, so you're uh, you just graduated from Pepperdine with your uh, Master of Arts, right? Yeah, um, MA in Religion. MA in Religion. So, um, and uh, when did you start that? And when did you kind of say, "Man, I need to do a master's degree"? You know? Yeah, I, I've always loved the classroom. Um, mm-hmm. I think the just who I am I love sitting at the feet of experts and I love just absorbing the the knowledge and you know eating the crumbs that fall from their plate of wisdom and uh, and so I, I knew even when I finished my undergrad that that wouldn't be the end um, and so when we came back to my wife and I moved back to Malibu to work at the University Church uh, at Pepperdine I knew I would start my my master's program and so um, I think about a year or two after we started, I uh, started working here, I, I started the master's program and I basically did one class a semester mm-hmm. for like the last five years. So it was a okay. slow journey, yeah. um, but we were in no hurry. It wasn't for me, it wasn't It wasn't about getting a degree. It was mm-hmm. literally about the journey. Um, and so I awesome. uh, loved that learning process. My wife and I took classes together and we would like compete for grades and things like that. That's and, great. Um, I would always beat her in papers and she would always beat me in tests. So, there you go. Um, we, uh, that was probably about a five or six year journey for me to go from the first day I took class to um, defending my master's thesis and, okay. uh, and, and getting that diploma. And how is she finished as well? Or? Uh, yeah, she actually just defended her thesis about two weeks ago. Fantastic. Um, and so uh, she's submitting it to the dean uh, basically this week. That's awesome. Well, congratulations. Thanks. Um, and uh, so let's see, your, um, your master's thesis, um, is I think you know something I've heard you kind of give the ten minute yeah. version of I've heard the elevator pitch as well, um, and every time I'm just incredibly intrigued by the idea. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm not exactly sure what your thesis is titled, but I've I've um, what I kind of connected to is this idea of post traumatic growth, mm-hmm. um, but I still don't know that I have a whole grasp on what that even means, what that phrase. Yeah. I, I, I think trauma often is a negative thing in our mind. You yeah. know, um, somebody experiences trauma as a young child and needs therapy, yeah. or uh, someone might go to war and come back with um, PTSD or something. Yeah. You know, and so um, tell us a little bit about you know what this thesis is about and yeah. and why you use that kind of term post traumatic growth. Yeah, yeah. Well, I'll even back up one step further and share where it kind of came from oh yeah um, fantastic we uh, uh my wife and i do a, a vacation every year and mm-hmm. one year i get a pick and then the next year she gets to pick so we uh, rotate alternate back and forth who gets to pick the vacations right and so over the last seven or eight years that we've been doing this um, we can identify uh, trips and experiences that stand out above mm-hmm. the others and one night we were just having a conversation about uh, some of our experiences and some of the ones that have been most meaningful to us and the most fun uh, and the yeah. most uh, memorable. Right. And what we realized through that conversation is that uh, the trips that we enjoy the most are the ones that included some form of challenge or mm-hmm. some sort of obstacle, uh, whether planned or unplanned. And so as we look back at our trips, uh, we saw that the ones that had some, some form of challenge were, uh, were the ones that were most memorable. We uh, climbed Kilimanjaro uh, a couple summers ago, and that was a, 
uh, a vacation um, that we look back at as being really special. Mm-hmm. Um, and then um, uh, even even trips where you show up and realize that it's it's more challenging to get around the the country or the city than you were expecting because of language or uh, obstacles that come up along the way. Mm-hmm. Um, we look back at those and think like, man, those were those were our best trips, as opposed to uh, the more relaxing vacations that we've been on. So if you right. think about, I think we went on a trip to Italy several years ago and it was amazing, right? Like great food, great wine, great places, but it was very easy. Yeah. Uh, we had no bumps or challenges. It was just a smooth kind of retreat and that was great, but it's not the trip that we talk about. Right? Mm-hmm. It's not the vacation that we think, uh, like, man, that one was really special. And so as we're having this conversation about these uh, experiences uh, with our vacation, we started to ask, and I started to ask the question, like, why, why do we look back at, at these trips as being um, more memorable? Yeah. What, what about it made it more special uh, than our other vacations? Why do we always tell people stories about this trip versus that trip? And it started me thinking uh, about... Um, how they all had this common theme of some challenge or some obstacle that, that came up for us. So I was in the car and I was listening to a podcast uh, and I don't even remember what the podcast was, but um, this was probably four years, three or four years ago now. Mm. And the author started talking about post-traumatic growth. Uh, and I'd never heard that term before. Yeah. And, um, and as they were describing the idea of post-traumatic growth, the idea of um, the growth that comes in the aftermath of trauma, that started to connect with some things that had stood out to me in my life that I had realized uh, the things that I was most proud of or the, the times that I look back on with, with fond memories uh, often were, were connected with some sort of, or, of obstacle or challenge that I, that I faced. So that sent me down this, this journey to explore what is post-traumatic growth, what, is that, uh, what does that mean, what does that look like, um, and then in my master's thesis to start exploring uh, what, are, are there ways to unlock um, challenge for spiritual growth mm. uh, as well. So um, you're, I think on your blog you use kind of the obstacle is the way um, a few times. And uh, so that that's kind of an interesting thing. I, I've seen maybe on your social media stuff uh, like hashtag elective stress mm-hmm. or something like that. Um, so how do you... Uh, obviously we've talked about CrossFit, but, um, and fitness can be definitely one of the examples, but give us some examples of how you choose elective stress in your life. Yeah. Um, it's a great question. And I think one of the things that through my research I found is important to delineate is, uh, between what I call elective stress and, and trauma. Um, so when you think about post-traumatic growth, uh, the, the reason this is even a conversation is because of the history of trauma research. Mm. So if you think back to World War I, um, we have photos of soldiers in the trenches in, in Europe um, with this thousand yard stare and kind of blank faces. Uh, and at the time they called that shell shock. Mm. Uh, and there was a belief that, that that was actually caused by the concussion of the explosions that were happening around them. Um, and it wasn't until years later that they started to realize that that was actually psychological trauma mm. that they were experiencing from, from combat. And so those are some of the first uh, um, 
the, fir- the first research that started to come out on 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 post-traumatic stress yeah just something we hear a lot about now from veterans returning from iraq or afghanistan mm-hmm. um but they didn't realize that that was a thing you know at that time and then uh, after world war ii vietnam we started hearing more and more research about post-traumatic stress um, but it's only been within the last really 30 years uh, since the early 80s that the the, the concept of post-traumatic growth has been studied. Um, and what happened was uh, researchers were, were interviewing and working with um, people who had experienced trauma, whether through combat, but also uh, car crash uh, victims, you mm-hmm. know, those who have lost loved ones in car crashes, uh, or people who have battled through cancer, um, anyone who's experiencing something traumatic. And the research started to show that in the midst of the stress and the trauma, they had also started to uh, indicate measures of growth in certain areas in their life as well, one of which was spiritual. But the idea that that came out was that some of these people who've been through some really awful stuff actually look back and say that those traumatic experiences led them to experience great growth. Hmm. Um, And so that was really fascinating to me that, that someone could experience something traumatic and and identify growth through that. So when I started thinking about um, about how we can hack this and learn from it, uh, it was important for me to to delineate trauma from from what I call elective stress. No one in their right mind would choose to to battle through cancer right. just for the growth. Right. right. It's not something you would choose to do. Um, no one would choose to lose a spouse in a car crash. Like no one, no one would desire that sort of pain and trauma. Um, and so for me, as I started thinking about this in my research, um, I wanted to know if, if there are ways to, to grow from non-traumatic events, things that you can choose to participate in. Mm. So can we experience some growth through going through times of adversity or challenge uh, without it having to be traumatic. Um, and so that's what led me to what I call elective stress, which is actually uh, a term that uh, my thesis, thesis advisor uh, came up with in one of our conversations as that's I was awesome. describing, uh, as I was trying to describe this and trying to make him uh, believe that I wasn't crazy, believing <laughs> that you can do something really hard and miserable and grow from it. Right. Uh, and he said something like, man, this sounds like, like elective stress, like you're choosing to do something really hard. And I was yeah. like, yeah, that's it. It's elective stress. And so um, I, I define elective stress as uh, choosing to participate in, a, in an event or activity that is generally outside of one's self-efficacy. Um, and the idea there is that your self-efficacy is what you believe you are capable of doing. Mm. So if you're choosing to do something beyond your self-efficacy, you're choosing to enter into the unknown. Hmm. Um, you're choosing to do something that you're not sure you can finish. Yeah. So when we were talking a little earlier about uh, you finishing your first marathon a couple That's weeks right. ago, yeah. you, know, you, you said the, the phrase, you said, I didn't know if I could actually finish. Right. And really that statement that. means you were participating in elective stress, like you were choosing to do something that you weren't sure if you could do. Hmm. And um, that became really critical to my research for my, for my thesis. That's awesome. So, I mean, that's a great tie-in. So, I mean, we can all find moments where we um, can relate to those obstacles, those challenges that just kind of pop up out of nowhere. And some of them are really traumatic and some, um, you know, leave us kind of remembering, you know, man, we got lost or or whatever it was. Um, 
some of my fondest memories with my brother uh, was running through Bryce Canyon, which is not a very big canyon, but we we were just kind of, we were pretty fit at the time and we just took off running and only had like an hour to hang out there. And uh, we ended up on the top of the canyon looking across and could see our the motor home that my parents were in. And we're like, oh man, we've totally ended up on the wrong side. We thought we were over here. And and yet it's, it's one of my fondest memories, you know. Um, and then relating that to the to marathon too, there's, there's something... Um, I don't know if it's triumphant, but just kind of like when you finish, I mean, I was just emotionally exhausted. I, I was breaking down um, emotionally, but there was some element of I completed something I didn't know that I would be able to finish. And that's um, that really gave me kind of a set of focus. I mean, I was able to rest a lot more. I, you know, there's all sorts of things that I, I feel like coming out of that. Uh, have changed not just physically um, but mentally well, too. One thing that's cool about what you just said is that that has been kind of affirmed by the the world of psychology as well. There's some mm. research on um, what psychologists call uh, creating desirable difficulties, mm. um, and uh, a couple couple examples. Uh, they did a study um, with uh, over 200 high school students in Ohio. Um, and in several different classrooms, they had a control group and a study group. Mm. And in the study group, they actually changed the font of the material that they were learning uh, on, on the PowerPoint slides and on the papers uh, and, and put it in a font that was really hard to read. Hmm. So they would either uh, lighten up the font so you really had to focus uh, or they would use like an odd-shaped font that kind of yeah. threw your eyes off and so you had to, had to focus in to read it. And... Um, they, they did this for, you know, a period of, of about a semester. And then wow. as the students then took their tests, they compared the, the results from the tests of the control group who just used, you know, typical PowerPoint slides uh, mm -hmm. with the study group um, and found that there was a statistically significant higher grade average uh, in the study group of students who were using learning material that was intentionally more difficult to read. Um, and so they call that desirable difficulties. And there's a theory that uh, you, you learn things best when you really have to focus and really uh, are challenged to uh, engage in the material. Uh, and so I think that these moments in our life where, where we're faced with challenges force our mind to really focus in. And that's why they stick with us. That's why they're, they're memories. Um, and if that's true... Uh, then my question became, how can I hack this for spiritual growth? Yeah. You know, is it possible to engage in uh, something that I choose to do that is challenging um, to intentionally grow spiritually as well? So uh, you're reading all this research and everything like that. Um, what what did you what surprised you the most in what you say? I mean, it sounds like it kind of was a pretty organic process. If you were interested in in this, you you then started researching things all the way back to the trauma research and all that stuff. But um, was there something that surprised you uh, that you didn't expect to find? Uh, I think the thing that surprised me most was some of the pushback that I got from communities, uh, specifically mm -hmm. in faith and academics, uh, regarding the, the practice of doing hard things uh, mm -hmm. for spiritual growth. Um, I, I think that... Uh, some people thought I was crazy, like as I started talking about this and started asking people about this. Um, 
uh, some people wondered if, you know, if that, that's like a sign of mental illness that you would want to, you know, do something really, really hard, uh, and, and that you would choose to, to, to do that. Um, but people did tell me that I was crazy wanting to run 26 miles, but I'm not sure they meant it, you know, out of my mind. Right. Yeah. And, uh, and, uh, and maybe it is, uh, maybe it's extreme. Um, but I, I made the case that, uh, and I believe this is true, um, that, that we, we make choices uh, to, to grow um, in our own ways, uh, in our own faith journey. And so uh, I, did, I spent a lot of time looking into um, uh, the, the history of, of spiritual disciplines and how we've used spiritual disciplines in our Christian faith uh, for growth. And so one of the things that came out as I spent time in this, this research is uh, one of the most common spiritual disciplines that we think of is fasting. Um, and that has been shown throughout the course of history that Christians engage in fasting. Mm-hmm. Um, but if you were to separate this, this theological, spiritual component from the practical component, you would see that fasting is simply skipping a meal mm-hmm. uh, or a series of meals. So when you start thinking about it at that level, um, you can see that the practice of skipping a meal can be uh, what we would call healthy for, for spiritual growth or a spiritual discipline. Um, but the same practice can also be uh, considered unhealthy if it's done to lose weight uh, mm-hmm. or if we're talking with someone who's struggling with anorexia uh, or bulimia. Mm-hmm. Um, the idea of, 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 of avoiding food or purging food um, can, be, can be viewed as incredibly unhealthy. Mm-hmm. So the practice itself is the same. Uh, if I skip uh, three or four days worth of food for spiritual growth or if I skip three or four days worth of food because uh, I, I'm struggling with anorexia, um, those are, uh, the, the, the actual practical, um, uh, you know, um, choosing not to consume food is the same, but the purpose right. is totally different. Right. Mm-hmm. And so that started, started me thinking about, uh, how there are a lot of practices that we engage in that are, that are not necessarily things that we think of as being spiritual, um, that mm. have the possibility, possibility of being spiritual. Mm. So that led me to think about, uh, and to ask the question, what makes a spiritual discipline spiritual mm. instead of just a discipline? Um, and what came out of that is all of the things that go into a spiritual discipline uh, that we may not necessarily think of as being a part of the discipline. Uh, thinking about um, texts of scripture, uh, the, the, the way your mind connects with God through that experience, um, uh, mantras or prayers that we take on in the midst of practicing um, a, a discipline. And so in my research and in my, my thesis, I started to uh, explore what it looks like to take some of these tools of spirituality and, and lay them over some, uh, from, from my work, um, physical practices uh, that, that we engage in to, to use those things as tools for spiritual growth. Okay, so yeah, so definitely um, bringing those things together is, is really interesting to me. I find, you know, reading Richard Foster, Celebration of Discipline, Dallas Willard, you know, big in, into the disciplines. His book, Spirit of the Disciplines, is helpful. Um, and yet we, we tend to relegate that kind of stuff to um, what I kind of call mystics or, or people who are ultra spiritual, right? Yeah. And say like, well, yeah, I might fast during Lent or, you know, some time of the year or um, maybe if I'm really in a deep strait, I'll use some spiritual disciplines or something like that. But we kind of 
kind of put that over on the side. And I, I wonder if you've found that that's the same thing with fitness too, that, that just the same way it's like, there are the people who are ultra fitness people, mm-hmm. um, and there are ultra spiritual people. And we, the average person seems to kind of think, well, I can't be them. Mm-hmm. And so we kind of avoid, um, really getting our, our hands dirty in, in many ways, because I mean, when I read some of the stuff by Foster, um, he makes some of them pretty accessible. Like they're not these disciplines that I have to go off into a desert, you know, monastery or something yeah. to do. Um, so speak to that a little bit about, you know, how you find, cause I, I, I feel like that's this, a similar, um, experience that you, you might be able to speak to since it happens in fitness as well as happens in these spiritual disciplines. Um, the average person just kind of avoiding it. Yeah. Um, it reminds me a little bit of the history of asceticism mm. and ascetic practice, um, and the range of, of, of ways that Christians have engaged in, uh, ascetic practices, uh, uh, throughout, um, throughout history. And, uh, when we think about ascetic practices, we often think of, um, monastic uh, traditions where people take like a vow of chastity or something like that mm-hmm. um, and maybe that is uh, one step more than than someone who's engaging in the ascetic practice of of prayer and scripture reading on, on a daily basis um, but there's historical accounts of, of saints um, there's actually a, a story of a uh, of a saint who would um, who would uh, uh, consume the the vomit of a sick a sick person um to to show her dedication and belief um that that because of her faith like she would not become ill Uh, Hmm. and so it was like a discipline of uh, of of engaging in kind of extreme practices uh Hmm. or um like licking the feet of lepers uh to 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 show that that her dedication to god would uh prevent her from experiencing that illness so there's there's there's, uh kind of what i call like the dark history of ascetic practice um Mm -hmm. when we think about flagellation uh you know flogging yourself uh to to um to punish the body Mm -hmm. uh and uh, i think that stands in opposition to what i think about when i think about spiritual practices is that um your your body is not in opposition with with god Mm -hmm. um it's a tool that we can unlock or use to unlock deeper relationship with God. So it's not something that needs to be punished or dominated or, or, or conquered um, mm-hmm. as, as would be seen by the practice of flagellation or, you know, the extreme examples uh, of someone engaging in these kind of crazy practices to show that, that God is bigger than the body. Um, right. But I think that the body is a tool. Um, now, to what extent you explore that tool, I think is, is totally personal preference, right? Mm-hmm. Um, I think there are uh, there are ways and practices that we can engage in that increase our relationship with God, um, but there are also practices that that are um, personal preference. There are things that work for me based on the way my brain is made up, things that I really enjoy that I'm going to be more uh, regularly regularly engaged in mm-hmm. than maybe you or someone else. So. Um, when I, when I think about that, it makes me think that there are, there are ways to explore elective stress for everyone. Mm-hmm. Right? So, for example, uh, if, you, if you were to use running a marathon as our example, um, there may be some 
that uh, for whom running a marathon would be unsafe for their body, right. uh, for whatever reason, for joints uh, or for their heart. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, it may be a, a, a dangerous practice for them to engage in the, the process of running uh, a marathon. So that's probably not a wise choice for them to make as right. their first step into elective stress. Um, but maybe, maybe for that person, a walk around the block is really challenging, right? For someone who is um, not, not physically able to, to move or to run. Um, so I think they're scaling uh, for, for any spiritual discipline. Mm-hmm. Um, we think about prayer. Uh, I, I hear stories of people, you know, who can pray for hours on end. Yeah. It's never been my, my right. ability. Right. Um, but I imagine in time I could work up to that, right? Like anyone mm-hmm. could build uh, their practice or their discipline mm-hmm. to, to accomplish that. And so I think it's scalable, right? I think mm-hmm. you have to find um, something that is interesting or inspiring to you and then work towards it. Yeah. You know, you, it's interesting as you were kind of talking a little bit about CrossFit earlier on, you, you said that you were drawn to this idea of your body wanting, you wanted your body to be functional. Mm-hmm. And, um, and so the, the example you gave of like, well, I was doing the, uh, dumbbells or kind of the, um, curls and everything in the gym and trying to bulk up, but that mm-hmm. wasn't necessarily functional. Mm-hmm. Right. And, and I wonder if that's maybe, uh, part of our problem in the spiritual disciplines area mm-hmm. is that we we kind of idolize a few disciplines that seem accessible mm-hmm. that maybe make us look you know our, our piety our personal piety that makes us look good yeah. um, but it's not as functional for our spiritual life mm-hmm. you know and or for our for our life with God um, and our life in community with others you know mm-hmm. I I wonder if that's something um, that I definitely hadn't thought of before, like mm-hmm. the functionality of the spiritual disciplines and mm-hmm. what they, like you said, they're tools to help me mm-hmm. um, and to help us engage with God. And that um, kind of, in some ways, is like an aha light bulb going on in my head. Like, man, I need to start thinking about the functionality mm-hmm. and not just, is this one going to make me look, you know, prettier mm-hmm. um, in the in the idea of um, my piety and things. Yeah, and I think that gets back to the idea of um, of intentionality and the importance of uh, uh, of of being intentional in the practices that we choose and um, the ways that that help us grow in faith and um, and I think it's it's possible to align intentionality with uh, with a realistic um, uh, outlook on on what faith life integration looks like. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, if you were to tell me. That I would grow my relationship with God if I um, prayed, you know, 16 hours out of the day. Like I may believe that that's true, but I've also got to have a job to pay my bills, mm-hmm. right? So if that's the only way I can do it, it's not going to happen. Um, but if you were to say, if you were to make it accessible and say that I would grow my faith if I would spend time in prayer on my five-minute commute to the office, that's accessible, right? Um, so I think for me my whole purpose in exploring this concept of elective stress is that I'm not, I'm not saying that this is the way to connect with God and grow mm-hmm. your faith, but I'm saying if you haven't experienced uh, a deepening of your faith in your physical practices that you regularly participate in, here's an opportunity to, to add something to your repertoire. Yeah. Yeah. So um, give us one you know, example of kind of how you as a, as a minister, as a pastor, um, take this a- into your 
teaching, um, maybe it's with students, maybe, you know, college students or, or high school students, middle school students, uh, maybe it's church members that you're in community with, but how, how do you, um, cause obviously you've got some post-traumatic growth, uh, elective stress ideas in mind for yourself. Mm-hmm. Um, and then your, your thesis is kind of moving, moving us to kind of imagine that for ourselves. So um, how do you help a church member or, a, or a, someone you're mentoring kind of, uh, I guess, identify what that um, elective stress thing might be? Yeah, it's a, it's a great question. And um, in my last chapter of my thesis, I kind of lay out a plan for what this mm-hmm. would look like for someone interested in, specifically interested in guiding a community through something like mm-hmm. this. Because mm-hmm. um, I think you make a good point that it can be a personal practice uh, mm-hmm. or it can be a communal practice that, right. that a minister or someone is guiding a group of people through. And so I, I lay out basically five components to, to the process of um, practicing elective stress for spiritual growth. And that, that phrase is kind of critical because choosing to do something hard does not necessarily mean that you'll grow spiritually, mm-hmm. right? You and I may um, have both ran the marathon. We didn't, it was just you. But if I had <laughs> run it with you uh, a couple weeks ago, um, if you had been practicing elective stress or spiritual growth, uh, you could have grown in your relationship with God. If I had not been practicing the tools that I'm going to list out, I may not have experienced that growth. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's true even in the post-traumatic growth uh, research that has come out. Mm-hmm. Not everyone experiences post-traumatic growth. There's some right. who do not grow from the traumatic experiences. But what has come out of the research is that there are some things that lead to growth. Mm-hmm. And that has been what has been integrated into my kind of model for practicing this. Um, so five key steps to the process. Mm-hmm. Um, the first is what I call listening. Um, and that is uh, uh, both a personal and communal practice. Uh, identifying areas in your life where you uh, desire to grow. Um, what's something that you recognize as an area in your, in your spiritual walk with God that you want to grow in? Um, and this can be done communally as well. Uh, you know, if you're thinking about leading a youth group or a mm-hmm. church through this process, who do we want to be? You know, as we think about our, our ministry or our work, um, where are where are areas uh, of our life um, uh, that that could be that could be um, that could that could get better mm-hmm. um, through through a practice? Uh, looking at texts, looking at um, spending time in prayer communally, uh, and so really listening to God um, and, and hearing uh, and, and seeking. Um, a, a way that you want to practice uh, or a way that you want to grow. Um, so that's listening is the first step is just kind of recognizing that we need to um, listen and hear where, where we need to grow. Um, and, and then the second component of this is what I call mindful meditation. Um, and that is the, the practice of preparing yourself uh, for what is ahead. So these are pre discipline um, mm-hmm. practices that you would engage in the listening and then the mindful meditation. So mindful meditation is looking ahead to whatever elective stress practice you are participating in um, and thinking about the moments in your journey when you're going to experience challenge. So for you as a marathon uh, runner, the way this would look, uh, yeah. you know, if you were if you were leading your youth group, uh, you're getting 10 or 15 students <laughs> to agree to sign on to doing the marathon with you. Um, spending time in the in the weeks and months preceding mm-hmm. uh, in, in scripture, maybe identifying a text that is going to be uh, a theme text for for your journey. Um, 
and then looking at your actual practice, whether it be the training runs or the actual day of the marathon, mm. and and spending time in and meditating on the the moments throughout your journey that are going to be difficult. Mm-hmm. Right, so you can look ahead and think. I'm gonna be pretty smoked uh, after about seven miles of running or at the yeah. 13 mile mark or everyone always says like the 22 mile mark can be really brutal for yeah. people. Yeah. So thinking ahead um, and then intentionally choosing to revisit your, um, your the, the text that you've selected uh, and can that be a, uh, a mantra uh, in, in your mind? Can you, can you reflect on that text during, during those moments? So. Um, those are the kind of the two pre uh, pre um, pre practice disciplines that you would mm-hmm. you would take on. Uh, the third kind of step in the process is what I call contemplation, and that is what what happens after the practice, right? Mm. Um, so one of the the key elements that came out of the post traumatic growth research is not necessarily even what happens during, but what happens after. Hmm. So what do you do mentally? Uh, what's the story that you tell yourself mm-hmm. about the experience that you went through? Mm-hmm. Um, psychologists call this deliberate rumination. Mm-hmm. So everyone ruminates, your mind ruminates on right. things. Um, but deliberate rumination is essentially retelling the story of your experience to lead yourself to growth. Hmm. So for example, as you got to the end of the marathon, what were you thinking? Like when you crossed the finish line and over the next hour or two, yeah. like what was running through your mind? I, it was mostly, I finished, Yeah, you know, I yeah. finished and I really wasn't even that concerned about the time. Yeah. I, I didn't know what the official time was. My phone was a little bit off of the start and everything like that. So it really wasn't like, man, I finished at my goal time, even though I was really close to that. It was yeah. more just that mantra of, yeah. I finished. Yeah, yeah. That's great. That's great. Yeah. So, um, Deliberate rumination would be, uh, in, in our context of, of trying to uh, um, engage with some spiritual growth, would be, can we attach um, deeper meaning to the mm. I finished um, mantra in your mind or the I finished um, kind of uh, uh, mentality? Uh, why did you finish? What ways did you see God provide sustenance? Mm-hmm. Um, what way did your community uh, support you through this journey? What, what way did that text that you had been mm-hmm. speaking over your mind as you ran this race, what way, uh, did, did that help carry you through? Right. Mm-hmm. And then for some, if you, if you finish a challenging experience and have really negative self-talk, um, can we revisit that with some positive deliberate rumination, right? Mm-hmm. Can we look mm-hmm. back and instead of saying that was so miserable, I'm, I'm so disappointed with my performance or, uh, you know, when I look back to my first marathon experience several years ago, like I was so bummed about my time mm. and, you know, spent hours thinking like, oh, I should have trained more. I should have trained differently. Mm. Um, could I have instead looked back and acknowledged uh, the ways that I overcame a challenge, mm-hmm. uh, the, the, the community, the people, the, the way God provided a body for me to, to do mm-hmm. something that so few people even get the chance to do. So that's the idea of contemplation of of looking back over your experience uh, and deliberately ruminating um, for what they call positive reappraisal. Hmm. So can we positively reappraise the experience um, to help you lead towards towards growth? So fourth step in the journey uh, is what I call communal response. And this comes out of a, a theology that that suggests you haven't truly experienced transformation if that doesn't lead to others' transformation. 
Okay. Right. So if you um, if you've grown in your faith, that that should be tangible. Like people mm-hmm. should see that. Like it mm-hmm. should impact the people's lives around you. Mm-hmm. And so the communal response uh, uh, um, portion is is this idea of uh, of looking at your journey and then considering how can what you've gone through be a gift to someone else, right? Mm-hmm. Someone who's uh, who desires to grow in the same area as you do with their faith. Or maybe someone who's experiencing a challenge or struggle. Is there anything that you learned through your journey that can be passed on onto mm. them? And then the last is what I call um, just formation. And that is the assessment of the community uh, to see if your practice was successful. Um, mm. So did your youth group grow in the way that they desired to grow over this course of three or four months of training uh, and running this marathon? Mm. Um, did you accomplish the task that you were uh, aiming to to accomplish? So yeah. that's kind of uh, the, the practical implementation of, a, of an elective stress practice. Hmm. Uh, well, that's yeah, it's really fascinating. Uh, those five steps, um, or uh, yeah, I guess you'd call them steps, yeah. um, really do help you kind of think about. I, I was envisioning like you were gonna say, okay here's how you determine what an elective stress should be. But you're actually really trying to get us to go, how do you get in the right mindset to know what to pick and then, um, or what to choose, I should say, what, what yeah. to elective and is going to be. And then really the, the focus is on uh, learning and, and not necessarily capturing that learning, but, but assessing that yeah. learning. Like what, what growth did you do? And I think so many people struggle with the assessment thing. I mean, I, yeah. I can reference back and say, yeah, I felt good at my marathon or I think that it was a good goal, but you, you draw in the community um, and you have these practices that really help with assessment. And I think that's, that's huge because, and, and something I think you've taught me with CrossFit too, is we've done, um, you know, as I've done it at camp with you mm-hmm. or at different um, events uh, where you say, you know, for us, we're going to do the same motion and it's going to be measurable. So mm-hmm. if we're doing a, a sit-up, we're going to put our hands on the floor behind our head. Mm-hmm. We're going to sit all the way up and touch the floor in front yeah. of our feet. I love that you remember that. That's yeah. <laughs> so, so, but it, it stuck in my mind, and I actually do sit-ups differently now because you, you, you kind of made this point that if you're not able to measure what that sit-up is, if you're doing some sort of half sit-up or a crunch or some sort of thing that you can't actually do the full range of motion right. – um, and you're not timing it and counting how many reps you're doing in that same interval of time, then there's no way to know and to measure the growth that you've accomplished in, you know, in the next week or the week after. Um, and you know, as much as I didn't really want to have to count all my reps and then write with my little chalk, you know, uh, thing on the wall, it really does mean something when you are able to measure that growth. And so having, you know, something as intangible as spiritual disciplines, um, with some sort of, of way to say, this is how we're going to measure the growth, I think is a really good step in the right direction because yeah. um, I at least haven't come across any writing that really does a good job of measuring. Yeah, um, it's really challenging. Growth. And that, uh, in my thesis, that was a, uh, I would say one of the most difficult things to assess, right? Mm-hmm. Um, how do you know if you've grown spiritually? Mm-hmm. Um, I, for my for my research, I really rooted myself in James Fowler's stages of faith Okay. Um, research and he uh, talks a lot about the basically the six stages of faith that mm-hmm. that one goes through um, 
and uh, he approaches this more from like a psychological, uh, more identifying um, a stage that you're in rather than a, uh, his research is not to suggest that you should grow through these six stages of faith. It's just a reality. It's almost like mm. a developmental uh, scale that people go through various stages of mm. faith. But I think from a, um, from a Christian perspective, um, I think our, our goal is to be continually more formed into the image of Christ, right? right. And so um, identifying what that looks like and how we see that on a practical level can be really challenging mm-hmm. um, and to some extent maybe subjective. Uh, but I think it's important for, um, for you to identify what that means to you for sure mm-hmm. uh, to, to recognize whether or not it's happened. Yeah. But on a practical level, the the implementation of the elective stress practice, that's the fun part, right? You mm-hmm. get to pick um, something that's safe for you, right? Like mm-hmm. I, I don't suggest that people instantly say like, oh, I'm going to swim across the English Channel if they don't know how to swim, right? <laughs> right. Like that would definitely be an elective stress practice. That would not be wise. Yeah. Um, so, uh, you know, thinking about something that you would enjoy doing um, that would be moderately challenging that you're not sure if you could complete or complete the way you want to do. Um, we do this a lot with our teens with backpacking and trekking and things like that that are safe but challenging, right? Mm. Um, you're going to experience some some challenges on a 15-mile trek with a 40-pound backpack in a day. Um, we're going to push your ability uh, to, to be comfortable. Mm-hmm. Um, so it doesn't need to be traumatic, right? That's the key uh, with this is that we're not trying to... Um, uh, initiate a traumatic experience for anyone, just a challenging experience. And mm-hmm. that's why that, that definition of self-efficacy is so important, that it's beyond what, what you think you're capable of doing. Mm-hmm. Right? Um, and then when you do that in community with appropriate safety measures, you know that you're going to be safe doing it, um, even if it's even if it's a challenge for you. Yeah. Well, Dusty, this conversation has been fantastic. Um, I, I think we need to revisit some of these things in another one. For sure. Um, I guess I'll just leave you this one question um, just to kind of close our time because uh, podcasts and these conversations that I'm doing are all about things that add value to your life. And so there's been a ton of things that have added value to my life. And, and that's a big reason why I wanted you on the podcast. Um, and you've shared definitely how, how different elements have added value. But uh, thinking just about your faith, so you're you're doing an MA in religion, and you're connecting all of this stuff from fitness and um, and the research that you've done in in studying, um, but you you've started from this place of faith, and and so um, faith in in Jesus and, and in Christianity, and so um, how how do you see that adding value to your life? Like, and that's a that's a broad question, I know, but um, just take a shot at it as we close. Yeah, um, I think it's a great question, and really the the critical question for any practice, right? Because it it needs to be something that that works or that mm-hmm. matters to you. And um, for me, one of the things that I think uh, pursuing elective stress for spiritual growth has brought has been training uh, in an elective manner for for unexpected non-elective stressors in my life. Hmm. Right. So one of the things that I've been doing recently is uh, I was telling you I'm I'm learning how to swim. Uh, I'm, yeah. I'm new to swimming, um, and uh, 
And, and so I'll, I'll spend time at the pool and I'll, I'll work through an elective stress practice that I've crafted mm-hmm. for myself. And um, one of the steps is in the midst of, of my swims, I'll, I'll repeat the mantra, um, shelter from the storm in my mind uh, uh, to just kind of push through the challenging moments. And that has played out in the midst of my day at work when I experience a stressful day, um, reminding myself that I have that mantra that that um, God is my shelter from the storm. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it has, it's been cool to see how this practice that I've been engaging in on the side by choice mm-hmm. um, has shown up when I've faced moments of uh, interpersonal conflict or stress at, at work um, that, I, that I know the tools uh, to, to connect with God in the midst of the moment. Um, rather than just wrestling with anxiety or, or the challenge of the moment that I can um, disconnect uh, and and be deliberate about my ruminations about mm-hmm. that experience. Mm-hmm. That's fantastic. So, yeah, I, I just love um, kind of exploring the connections. Like I said, I, I've grown up with a dad that ran mm-hmm. and also has his master's from Pepperdine in ministry and so has always kind of bridged um, with his little mantra of you can sometimes you think your way into a better way of acting and other times you act your way into a better way of thinking and I'm not actually sure that he came up with that but it's, <laughs> it's, like uh, it. it's become his thing because he says it so often to me and uh, and I'm hoping that it will become my thing because I think that's really true there are times where we're going to try and think our way into a better way of acting and I think that's the the primary mode that we exist in. If I just think a little bit better, if I just read a little bit more, I can think my way into a better way of acting. But there's a reality that sometimes it's the things we do that shape the way we think and more more often. Um, so thanks, Dusty, for sharing your, your thesis with us. And um, I think the next podcast should be uh, like a double date or something. Get our spouses in here. It. That would be fun. Yeah, let's do it. All right. Thanks, thanks Dusty. Okay, well, that was the conversation, and you can find out more about Dusty on his blog. That'll be in the show notes, and you can connect with him. And I also uh, want you to know that next week uh, we'll be doing a podcast on simplicity, and then uh, after that um, we're also going to be having some more uh, conversations in May, uh, hopefully from the Pepperdine Bible Lectures. And so if you don't know anything about Harbor, the Pepperdine Bible Lectures, it's happening May Uh, first through fourth and it'll be out at Pepperdine University in Malibu and I'll be doing some podcast episodes conversations with people uh, there so looking forward to that thanks for tuning in to value add for more great conversations and insights visit valueaddconversations.com